Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read-Along. I am ATN. Hey there, I'm Yule. And I'm DM Phil. Hey guys, how's it going? Fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Alright, so this is chapter 22. This is the last difficult chapter. This is the last long chapter at 20 pages. And we're closing in on the end of this novel in a way that is kind of frightening, I guess? Because by the end of this chapter, I still don't have answers for a lot of things. And I'm like, he's only got 20, 24 pages to, to finish the whole book. And I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if he can do it. Well, anyway, are you guys ready in every capacity that you can be ready? 10-4. Ten, 10-4. Ten yeah. ten, <laughs> All right. So last episode, the revelry of the Geteron fate began. A sorcerous storm was approaching from the east, and Ralik Nam ended a despised councilman's life. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I like that part. Oh, it was really good. <laughs> I hated Turban Orr from the get-go. From the very moment we met him, I hated his guts. And then to see Ralik, whom I love, just, you know, stuck, stuck, stab him twice. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Are you guys ready to discuss the preamble? Yeah, I'm ready. I got three words for you. Oh, yeah, what's that? Too many words. Too many words. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's TLDR. I mean, honest to God, uh, did you guys pull anything out of there at all? Uh, nothing. It was it was about great ravens. That's all I got. No. And it was it was written in bad no, poetry. I, I mean, I, don't fight over each other to answer first. Well, no, I, don't, I just, it seems like a poem. Uh, I don't think there's anything seems, necessarily... Like a bad poem. Well, it's... Even. Who knows this who this Collet good... is? Have we seen oh, this person's cares? name already? No. Maybe this is their one big poem in life in 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 in, in uh, Jerusalem or wherever this uh, text is coming from. I don't know. It's about <laughs> great ravens, and that's all I got out of it. At all. I mean, that was the very very maximum I got. Too long. All right, you guys ready to talk about the chapter itself? Yeah. Too long. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it was long. 20 pages. It, it's 20 it's pages. not that 20 pages is long. It's just Steven Erickson put so much into this that, whew. Yeah, you got to be mindful when you're dealing with um, 20 pages by him. Well, I can see how like I, I skipped over stuff in my brain reading it once, twice, yeah. or listening to it. I read it in preparation for taking notes again yesterday, and there were definitely things in there that I had missed in the first reading because I read it, you know, just for fun, you know, a couple of days before that, mm -hmm. and then rereading it, I was like, oh, oh, I totally missed that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I missed that too. Uh oh, <laughs> twenty pages. <laughs> twenty pages of that. that. That was just the first page. <laughs> it was. It was early. It was early days. Let's just put it that way. Are you a gentleman? Are you ready to begin? Tally ho. Raced has driven off the dragons and continues towards Darujistan. He's not in really good shape, but once he regains his finest, he's just going to make a new body. Well, that's, that's his thing, right? Yeah, he's just going <laughs> to remake it. Um, there's one valley left between him and Darujistan, and at the bottom of that valley rests Solana. And so, yeah, just to recap, there were five dragons, and he chased two of them off. Two of them more are circling above him, and then Solana is 
dying. Landed and wounded. She's wounded. Well, yeah, but he, Reese said he could feel her her powerful lifeblood slipping away. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe she's mortally wounded. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, I don't know. Well, that's that's the indication Reese gave is that her life's blood was 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 spilling out, not spilling out, but bleeding away is what he actually said. Mm-hmm. Well, in the background, remember it's nighttime, and in the background is the city of Darujistan, and it's he marvels at it. He looks at it and he thinks that it's more magnificent even than the jagged cities of old. And that is kind of mind blowing because we have to recall how old this guy is. He is old enough that he may be the only person alive that remembers jagged cities. Because there, we've all indications have been so far that they were, you know, pastoral people, you know, that didn't like cities, that didn't want to be too close to others. But apparently, they learned from experience that civilization was the root of evil and they spread out and they lived like hermits or something like that yeah it's kind of like everybody wants their own 40 acres and a mule yeah well it's it's while he is marveling at the city in the background that he recalls the garrison and the bridge that cole crossed and was getting help from you know he tried to get the surgeon to help him but the surgeon was drunk well, Race blew up that bridge, and he killed all the men at that garrison. And he'd also encountered a rider. This is your guy from last chapter, right? Exactly, exactly. You, you, you were right, yeah. And they called it out here, and he's like this annoying little speck. <laughs> oh, Race ended Turban Orr's messenger just because he was in the way. He was like, ah, plop, dead. Uh, they're bigger um, than Talana Moss, he says. Uh, the people that he's been encountering were slightly bigger than Talana Moss. Uh, so yes. my question is, what what are the Talana Moss like? What are they like? Five five type? Is that what it was? I can't remember. We don't really know. Nobody's ever measured one. Right. So I guess less but, than six feet is what we're looking at. Well, their average Definitely. size is smaller than the average human size. Right. So. Right. You know. And they, the language, he says, is similar enough. So it's, it's one of those things where we're reminded of the fact that the Talanamas seem to have been the predecessors of mankind. Mm-hmm. Like, genetically, the predecessors of mankind. Because um, it's something that race recognizes, too. He sees the roots of their language are similar enough that he's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squash these people later. Mm-hmm. But right now, he's only interested in Solana. Right. He wants to kill her and get to his finest. So he heads down into the valley... He gets pretty close to Solana. Mm. He actually says that he gives her her life. He offers. Yes, he offers. He said, go away. I'm showing you mercy. Go away. Which is weird because he's kind of a dominator type. And I I, I get the conclusion, even though he won't admit it, that he, on some levels he was afraid of her. Oh, I think so. Well, is it also maybe he? you have to kill this thing. You can't dominate it. So maybe as a sort of sign of respect maybe offering it its life but he was laughing as he's like approaching it you know watching it die out basically you know he's taking glee in this well, he, he's on his way to kill her <laughs> right yeah. he's not on his way to pet her mm-hmm. you know and send her on her way he's gonna kill her and she doesn't budge so he heads down into the valley and disappears he enters into an eldering dream the sky is different the world is young again, younger than even he can remember, where the mountains are all sharp and the river hasn't cut a channel yet. 
And there stands this little round man in a funny little waistcoat with food stains all over the sleeves looking up at him. Krupp, of course. And if you remember, last section, he was sleeping right next to the banquet table. Yes. And I said, that's, he, that's weird. And you said, well, maybe he's like, whatever you said, dreamwalking or something. Um, well, apparently he is dreaming because here he is. And this is the eldering vision. Uh, but essentially, he's he's like, who is this little man in front of him? And Krupp is talking up at him. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry, but this is not your time. This is not your place. And he tries to just blast Krupp with magic. And Krupp's like, whoop, reappears over here. He's like, oh, that's rude. <laughs> Krupp is essentially acting as a distraction. I think you're right. I think it's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah, what, for what tool to show up? Uh, it's Alana Mass with a gigantic brown jagged sword that Race notices, but way too late, as the sword is, like, cleaving him basically in half and driving him to the ground. And his body is pretty messed up already, like we said. The magic is splitting him apart. His hand is not a hand, you know. Uh, yeah. All sorts of stuff like that. I think he was described as... Um, his he was he was almost nothing but bones remained. They were crushed. They were broken, and they were only being held together by Umtos Falak wizardry. Right. That was it. Like he's a walking skeleton with like tatters of flesh. But like you said, if he gets to the finest, he's like, eh, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> big whoop. Well, I, I, had, whoop. I had a question. Didn't Tool say that he wasn't going to interfere with this thing? He was just going to stand by as an observer. Yeah, he did. For 10 days, he was going to stand and watch. Well, No, I thought it was 10 he days he was going to wait and leave, is what I thought was going yes, to happen. that is correct. He was going to wait for Lauren for 10 days and not interfere with the Jagged Tyrant. But here he is interfering. Philip's completely yeah, right. Yeah, so, or was it he couldn't deal with the finest, maybe? N- neither. It's neither of those mm-hmm. things. Like, he is being compelled. Um, the blood, his blood, his his old oath like is still active. So when it came down to it, Pran Cole summoned him to assist and he had no choice. He had to do it. Oh, so he, okay. Cause yeah, he said something about, um, why am I here? Essentially? He said, I, Oh, that's what he literally said. I sense a bone caster, bone caster's hand in the summoning. Correct. Okay. 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 I get it now. He didn't have a choice because no. And Krupp kind of explains it. I don't remember the exact wording, but Krupp basically tells him, that it's be you know it's because of the old oath that you're here and sorry but you you have no choice in the matter. But raced is like oh that's no big deal. I I I love Talana Moss. They they they're best servants to me that I've ever had. Right. None can stand before him. Right. And that is when Kroll arrives. And mind you, I've been wondering like where's Kroll? Where's Kroll? You know he's like I'm gonna get into a fight and I'm gonna lose, but I'm not gonna die. And then we didn't see him again for ages, you know, mm-hmm. but he arrives. And when he arrives, the raced, the jagged tyrant says, you look familiar. Are you hood? No, you're not hood. I sense nothing from you. He said he's the maker of paths, which yes. we had encountered that before, but we didn't know who it was referencing. And now we, we find out. It's definitely Kroll. Yes. So Kroll warns raced that if he continues on his path, He's going to be destroyed. That Solana's master awaits him in Darujistan, and then a fate worse than death right. will befall Raced. That's right. He also says that the tide of enslavement has reversed now, 
and that mortals rule the gods and not the other way around. And he tells Raced that he was once obelisk, but is no longer. And that is what triggers recognition and Raced. Right, and so the obelisk is one of the cards in the deck of dragons that is considered neutral. Did you look it up? No, I just remember. Okay, maybe I shouldn't so the, rely on my memory. <laughs> maybe the current card obelisk is occupied by Burn. Oh, so this person was in Burn's position before Burn took over, however long ago. Nevertheless, race is given a choice. He, Kroll tells him that he can either die by the hands of this Talana mass right now, or he can return with Kroll to the realms of chaos or through the gates of chaos, whichever. And, you know, this is not his time. Come, come with me. Essentially. So coming, what does that entail? Come with me. Our time has come. I mean, I think, well, they came from chaos, right? Right. And then they're going to return to chaos, which to me, that's the same thing as entropy, right? Just the disillusion of matter and like they're gone. Mm. They're, they're forever gone. Or until they come back again. <laughs> until someone summons them back with blood or whatever. I guess, yeah, that's right. Because, because Raced said, no, you can't be cruel. Like you went to, you went to the realm of chaos, right? Yeah, he passed through the gates. And so from race perspective, it's not possible to come back, but I guess it is somehow. And I, you know, I'm sorry. I got to call shenanigans this whole thing. You've got this world ending entity and you're just like negotiating with it and showing it mercy. I don't get that. I would have no mercy. I would just like end it. Yeah, but well, maybe they can't, maybe it's a bluff. Oh, I thought tool was more than capable of ending raced. Well, that's what they said. All right. Well, I believe it. Um, I don't, I don't. Well, it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? It is a moot point, but why, Yule? Because race is like, see ya. <laughs> yeah. And he's like gone. His body is like, it, the rest of whatever body he has is, you know, just crumples. And they're like, yep. oh, he's somewhere else now. He's found another body. Yeah, he found a new body. That's what I, <laughs> oh, yeah, you see, man, this is, ah, why give him that opportunity? I don't know, Philip, but it seems to me like there's no way that Onos Tulon could actually destroy him utterly without great expense to their own lives. You know, even Andermander Rake said that he would be greatly diminished if he defeated Raced. Hmm. Let's be honest. The story would be over sooner if he, uh, <laughs> if he was killed right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So there apparently is some significance to the title that is applied to Onos Tulan, the first sword of the... No, he's the sword of the first empire. And apparently that is extremely significant. I think Krupp said he had no equal on Earth. But, you know, has he met all the Shagula, Shagula or whatever they're called? Uh, Segula is how I say it. Yeah, has he met those people yet? No. Nope. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Perrin and Kalam are skulking around in the wilder parts of Lady Simtal's garden when they encounter something altogether strange. You know how in uh, in military movies they're like you know hand signal this and hand signal that and they always like perfectly understand these dumb little hand signals. Well, that's what Kalam is doing to Perrin, and Perrin's like, "Got it. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay here." And Kalam like kind of whisks off into the shadows, and then Perrin doesn't stay there. He kind of like moves along anyway. You know. <laughs> well, but let's, um, let's go back a little bit. Perrin has a Perrin has a sense that something is not right with this with this garden or this this small forest. It's it's some it's it's tickling at the back of his mind that something's not right about it. When he moves up to where Kalam had been, 
he sees a shadowy figure who's a smallish woman standing in front of what looks like a block of stone, possibly an altar. And Kalam is like sneaking up and he's got his daggers out over his head. And he's like, ah, he goes to stab this woman and she elbows him in the guts and then knees him in the balls. (laughs) And he goes down and he's like, sorry, what are you doing here? She's not doing that because she like meant to do it. No, she complete reflex. Right. Like out of the back of her mind, she knew she was about to be attacked and she ended her attacker without a, a knife. She did it with her elbows and her knee. She ended column. Yeah, that was, she put him down. That was pretty, pretty. I don't. I thought that was really impressive and terrifying at the same time. So after he's on the ground, Perrin is like, "Uh oh, my turn!" And he goes running forward. And Kalam's like, "Wait, don't. Something's off here." No, uh, actually, it's it's sorry. Perrin, sword in hand, dashed into the clearing, and sorry basically said, "No, please." Uh, held up her hands in defense and etc. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So Kalam goes to, like, sit on that stone that she had been looking at, and she's like, don't touch it. And they uh, they observe this thing. So Sari, or Absalar, is fighting, you know, fighting Kalam off like she knows what's going on. Oh, it wasn't a fight. Well, you know it what I mean. It was not a fight. Offending, it was a bam, bam. She fended him off, is what I'm saying, uh, without knowing what's going on. And now, all of a sudden, she knows not to touch this thing. Then they go with this dialogue of where her mixed personalities and memories are still, like all jumbled together. Yeah, that will get. we'll find that out when uh, Mallet shows up. No, it's right here. Right. Is that it's in both places. Yeah. But she like she remembers killing Perrin, but then she doesn't know who he mm-hmm. is and she doesn't really remember him and she thinks Kalam is an old friend. But before we move on from this point, let's talk about that block yeah. that's sitting in the forest. Well, but before we get to that point, I had a point to bring up to you guys. Where just what you just said, where she said she remembered where she literally said, I know Colum, and just a second ago she didn't. She's like, I know you, don't I? She was talking to Colum, and then she says, I know Colum. He's an old friend, I think. And the assassin choked on something. And I don't... Yes. <laughs> well, I thought that was because he just got kneed in the groin, and he was still, like, choking. But I wonder, is this because... I'm... They... Sorry. Sorry and Kalam were never friends, ever. No. But... Absolutely not. But I... But, but it was actually... It was Dancer, the rope, Dancer, in his in her body, and I wonder if Column and Dancer were friends in the old days. Hmm. They knew each other. Interesting. Interesting. I was prepared to tell you no chance, you know? Because I was like, there's no way Sari was ever a friend with, but the rope might have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely possible. That's definitely possible. Philip, I think that's one of those things that you're going to have a hard time remembering so you might just put it in the spreadsheet as a question. Yeah, there's no way I'll remember. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there's no <laughs> way you'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we All could right. bookmark this point. <laughs> exactly. Um, so tell me now, what does this thing look like? There's the block of stone that's not stone that's in the forest that they're all kind of preoccupied with now. Well, they say it's no bigger than a table or it's gotten to the size of a table, right? Okay. And, uh, I don't know. I, I always, she says that it's growing. Right. And when, when they look at it, it's like its edges are all blurry and then they will kind of resolve and it has gotten bigger. Right. And then they say it's not even stone. Really? It's wood. Right. 
And I, I mean, immediately I was wondering, is this the thing that Lauren planted? That's what I have always thought. <laughs> I mean, that's what I thought. Yes. Okay. So it's anyway, it's becoming this like blockish shape that's not too big, but it's in the forest and like they sense stuff from it and nobody's really keen on what they're sensing from it. Well, okay, so let's- this is the, the thing that they're, this is the thing that they, the, the, the foreboding, I guess they're getting from the garden, right? I mean, I don't know. I think at this point, it's really unclear. I think I think I mean, this thing right here is the source of their anxiety and their their willies, whatever you want to call it. But I, I kind of want to start a mental checkpoint right now with this thing and y'all's mind because this is the finest. Is that correct? And it's growing. That's what we're guessing. Well, I mean, I've read the chapter, Philip. So, but Lord, you've, you've read the chapter. But Lauren said, find an acorn, plant an acorn. And she said, plant. Yep. Oh, I know. I know. And she did it here somewhere. Yep. 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 So, and now we've got this thing growing out of the yard. Yes. My, I, this is, okay, everybody listening, I was very confused about this and other things coming, but I think this is the thinnest. And it's growing. I think that's a, that's a very reasonable thing to assume at this point. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. So... Perrin runs off to find Whiskey Jack, and he sees them arrayed as they were as guards, you know, making a cordon between the terrace and the actual garden. So he breaks a branch, and all six of the bridge burners that are guards, like, spin around and like, whoo. So they were very in tune with what was going on behind them. And he tells Whiskey Jack that he's found Sari. She's not all there. Something's really wrong with her. And there's something else kind of ugly going on back there. There's no word from the assassins as yet. And Whiskey Jack says that fine, they're going to move soon. They're going to unleash Fiddler and Hedge. Do you guys have anything to add to the section? Uh, no, only that I thought it was like really cool how, how Erickson wrote it um, from the standpoint of Perrin like snapping a branch. That was intentional. He didn't do it on accident and right. to get their attention because he just doesn't yeah. want to blunder into the party and make a scene. Right, he wants to keep uh, keep uh, I don't know low profile, low profile exactly. And if you remember, Crocus just like walked right between them, and they never even heard him coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he's a rogue, right? You'd expect that. Crocus is good at what he does. Remember, Sari appreciated his skill when he was breaking into mm-hmm. um, the Darl estate. She was like, "Oh, he's pretty good." Yeah. Well, also, if you remember, I have to bring this up. So Crocus grabbed Chalice or Charlize. And drug her into the garden. I'm like, well, how do they not see that? <laughs> mm. They were obviously occupied. Well, there was All like right. a duel going on and stuff, right? A dead body <laughs> and whatnot. Know. I don't know. I hate Crocus. All right. Ralic is headed for the door. As with Circle Breaker, he comes across Krupp, only now Krupp is awake. And Ralik makes this offhand remark, if I'd have known you were here, and Krupp snaps at him. And he's like, silence, Krupp must think. Yeah, yeah. Krupp isn't talking like he normally does. Uh... He's talking like he normally does, but the mask is gone. Okay. He's like, this is, this is the man behind, because he even talks in the third person still. Mm-hmm. He says, Krupp must think. But, he, but this is the man behind the mask. He's not all ornery. He's, uh, I'm sorry, he is all ornery. He's not his usual affable, happy self. And this really disturbs Ralik. Like, when he sees how agitated Krupp is, like, he starts to worry. He's like, uh-oh. But he says he also sounded drunk. 
So maybe that's how he explains it away so it's not as uh, hurtful as it may have felt. Right. <laughs> Krupp, he's never said anything like this before. <laughs> Krupp comports himself and tells Ralik, go go ahead, go home. Your destiny awaits you. What did he this, mean by that? This world is prepared for one such as raced. I don't know, Philip. I, I'm, I can guess, but I mean... There, he said two things, and I think they're both very, very important. Hmm. As far as his destiny, I mean, don't forget that this is a man. Krupp is a man who can divine the future. Oh, yeah. So it's very possible that he knows what's going to happen to Ralik in the next couple of chapters. Right. The other thing about Raced being <laughs> the world is prepared for one such as Raced. Like, ooh. <laughs> what does that mean? Like a guy like Raced can't get his hooks in the world the way he thinks he can? Or that we they're s- so well prepared for him that he can't, you know, possibly succeed at what he's trying to do? Times have changed. Like the world is not what it was when Raced was around. And now Raced doesn't actually stand a chance. Well, like he won't survive. Well, yeah. And the thing is, it's like he, he, um, he exploits humanity, I guess, or society or civilization to his whims so that he can, you know, wage war on the world, basically. Have some fun. Have some fun. But the world has gotten more jaded. The world has got more warlike without Raced being involved. There's nothing he can do to come to add to that kind of uh, torment. And, in fact, the people would rather fight against something like him than be subjugated to him. Maybe that's what that is. Well, remember, Lauren has been talking, she has been thinking about how humanity is a tyrant. Mm -hmm. And before them, the Amas were the tyrants. And the the Amas learned the lesson from the Jagat, apparently. And so I think it's just gotten more populous and more powerful as time has gone on. Nevertheless, Ralik continues on his way. And as he is about to depart, he passes by this woman wearing a silver, plain silver mask. And she touches his arm and he's like, looks at her. And she tells him that Ocelot's death could have been prevented. Who do you think that is? It's it, well, it's Vorkin, right? It's his boss. His boss's boss. Vorkin. <laughs> Vorkin. We knew she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he calls her out. He says Vorkin. And she gives the very faintest of nods well, to acknowledge that. And this is the first time he's ever met her, right? Ma- oh, yeah. Mask or no mask? No, yep, never met her. Never met her. her. Her mask is described as plain and silver, but the eye slits are tiny, giving away nothing of who is behind it. Like, he can't see her face at all. She lets him know that Turban Orr had protective magic, and it availed him not. And to Turban Orr's memory, I say, cheater. <laughs> I know. So I, it took me a while to figure that out. So that's why he was so arrogant and self-assured and cocky, because he thought... Well, that's why he always won, right? That's why he was the city's best duelist, because he was cheating. Yeah, well, accidentally or on purpose, however you look at it, so was Relic Nom. <laughs> was Relic cheating? <laughs> well, he had an auditorial dust all over him. He wasn't counting on that. Uh, no, he I mean, was not. Honestly, I'm just saying. I said unexpectedly. <laughs> he was counting on it. I think they were on an even playing field is what well, I think. Well, I think ultimately that's what it became. But whether or mm-hmm. not Ralik knew, if if it wasn't... The, I guess if there was no magic, it wouldn't have mattered. Hold on. Let's think about that for a second. You can put auditorial dust on you 
And if there's no magic against you, it won't have any effect anyway. Well, see, that's what I thought is that the, I thought that the protection magic that Orr had protected him against magical attacks or what have you. But I think it was against all attacks. Might have been. It seems that way. He got stabbed twice. I don't have any sympathy for the guy. He was cheating as far as I could tell. Anyway, Vorkin says to Ralik, accompany me. Your services are required. Uh, there was one moment in this part where Ralik is like, what now? What do I do now? Now that we've done what we've done, you know? He's having the same kind of thoughts that Marilio was having last sure chapter. Sure thing. It seems like a lot of people are having these thoughts, you know, in this book. Yeah. But e- even more so because he actually got what he wanted. They did what they needed to do. And now mm-hmm. before uh, Vorkin approaches him, he's like, what's going on? You know, what? what and it, it kind of reminds me of like, that idea like a dog that's like chasing the back of a car, you know, the bump, you know. And once it finally catches it, what are you going to do now? Yeah. And that's kind of where we are with uh, a bunch of these characters, actually. But especially mm-hmm. uh, Ralik Nam right now. Well, carrying on that thought that you just brought up, he was thinking about it. And he said, as Baruch had said, the time had come to go home. What did he mean by that? I took that very literally. Like, get out of here. Just to go home. And remember, that's Baruch, not Krupp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baruch can hear friends, too. I don't know. I mean, it, I, to my way of thinking, Baruch is not the most astute observer in the world. And, like, his advice may be good when it comes to sorcery, but I don't know if, if he would give good career advice. It may have been liberal, a uh, liberal, literal, which is that's, now yeah, that that's how I took now it. that he accomplished his mission, what is he going to do? And he's like, well, I don't know. Let's start by going home. Uh, Crocus has pulled Chalice into the bushes with a hand over her mouth. And he's like, please don't scream. I just want to talk to you. Yeah, he's lying on top of her because she was fighting with him. And he finally got her under control. And he did so by putting his hand over her mouth also. He does let her go. And she's like, get off of me. I didn't betray you. Gorlis is going to kill you if he catches us together. Uh, this is a very simple scene, to be absolutely honest, and I believe it finishes off our encounters with Chalice completely. Like, I think this is the end for her. Well, there was an important part in there. Crocus said, I didn't do it. And she said, I know you didn't do it. And he said her father had hired a seer, and the seer told her that it was essentially a woman who was a servant of the rope. And they didn't explain it, but remember, Crocus said none of this is adding up. It didn't <laughs> sound like he really had a hit on, or he didn't have a, a price on his head. Exactly. Somebody made up a story in order to convince him that he needed to hide. Is that what you think? It could have been Krupp, but could it also have been the um, Crimson Guard? They could have circulated the rumor uh, just as easily because they have also been protecting Crocus. Well, I thought there was actually guards came to Mammoth's house and were waiting for him after he left. No? I don't know. I I mean, we only have somebody else's word for that. Mises, right? Yeah, Mies, yeah, yeah. So probably it was the eel that set that whole thing up to convince Crocus to go into hiding. Because remember, that was his job too. Like, protect the coin bear at all costs. Well, yeah, okay, but that might be true. Because remember, Crocus had also said that it wasn't adding up that he had a price on his head. And he also said that, isn't that what he pays thieves' guild dues for? So that he doesn't yes. get into that kind of trouble? Well, and he was innocent. Which the Darl family figured out. And that seer that they hired didn't even stick around for payment. <laughs> They're like, the rope, I'm out. So Chalice wants to go and hang out with Gorlis, whose family has power, money, and influence, none of which Crocus has. And she's like, why are you even pretending? 
let's just go about our lives. And he's like, you're right. And she, she leaves. Well, he has to come to the grips that he has a pretty picture of what it would be like being with her. And he has yeah. no real reason to even feel that way. He's and just he would thief. have to completely change his personality in order to do so. I mean, he comes to the realization, I steal from people like you. <laughs> yes. She knows that too. I think it's nice that she's the one that delivers that message to him that he finally understands. I mean, he's been building to understanding that for a long time, right? But she is the one that delivers the information. And like that's a wise young woman mm-hmm. right there. To, to be able to so quickly put her finger on it. She's like, why are, why are you even pretending? Like, no. I won't tell anybody. They part amicably, but, like, they part into two separate worlds, basically. She into the upper crust and him into the world of thievery. Anyway, he, he takes off. He's like, I'm going to go look for this other girl, I guess. Well, that's his. So he goes off looking for Absalar. And I got to say, man, I don't think he deserves Absalar at all. I don't know about deserving, but he is supposed to be there to help her out right now, right? Whatever. I man. mean, that was the uh, <laughs> that was his mission, so to speak. Yeah, his mission was to help her, so he left her in the back of the garden <laughs> while he went off to go deal with this other important issue. Stay back here where all this other action is going on right now. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. If she utterly disappeared... Oh, no. If Absalar ended up meeting Gorlis and they hit it off and they ran off together, oh, that's oh, what he would deserve. Oh, that'd be funny. <laughs> Come on. Erickson had to find a way to bring Sari into the garden. Yeah, on a meta level, you are correct. I still think Crocus is a little punk. He is. All right. Good riddance, Chalice to Arl. Perrin and Mallet are headed back into the... Um, forested garden. Mallet dead stops at the edge of the glade where grows the strange wooden block. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, that thing is anathema to my dental warren. I go no further. He says it is aware of him and that it is hungry. That's scary. Well, Perrin goes on back and then he, you know, he meets up with Kalam and then he sends Sari out to to meet up with Mallet because Mallet's supposed to take a look at Sari. And he comments to Kalam, hey, the storm has stopped. But neither, neither of them are optimistic that the, the work of the night is over. So Mallet waves Perrin back over, and he tells him that the, the possession is over, but there is a second possession, a woman, and terribly sad, who has been protecting Sari's mind for the past two years, preventing her from going insane. But it's dying. It's weakening and dying. Yeah, going insane from all the crummy things she's done is Sari. Torturing people, killing people, etc. And yeah. just witnessing stuff, obviously, too, probably is pretty bad. Yeah. Poor shirt, the last one. Oh. He was a dog. <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, but at least he wasn't Crocus. What a jerk. <laughs> Either way. So this is the woman, the old woman, Riga, in her. Yeah. Protecting her. Getting uh, Anamander Rake, too. No. Well, not I getting. I she but just saw that. You're right. She, she just saw, saw that, that happening. Right. But that one, that person from the very beginning of the book. And she's protecting Yeah, Riga Sorry. the Seer. Okay. Uh, but she's done. She has no more power left. And Mallet cannot sense the pattern that she was trying for. But in their discussion, Perrin says, I'm not going to give you an order, but I think that you should just help her out. And so Mallet agrees to do and so. And by her, I, it's not Sorry, it's Riga the Seer. It's, well, both, well, really. I guess it's, how they're going to help Sar- Absalar out is they're going to let Riga, they're kind of like going to recharge her power, so to speak. 
so that you she give her can a power up. theoretically take care of the girl or at least her mental finish. well-being. Yep, finish the job. But finish the conversation the that they're having is like, well, we don't know if this old woman might just take full control of Absalar, you know, or the Fisher girl and not release her when the time is right, you know. Right. But right. they get in a whole philosophical conversation about well, she's done all this good for her now. Why would she go later on and do that? Right. All this actually this also kind of explains why Sari's been acting weird. Sorry, Absalar slash Sari has been acting weird and progressively more weird through times a bit because those mental walls have been collapsing or crumbling that Riga has has put up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, some of it actually must have been completely gone or never in place at all because of Sari's reflexes. Like, that stuff's all still there. Like, she can see in the dark the way she bested Kalam. Like, I don't think Riga even put up blocks for that stuff. She's just literally protecting her mind. That's from right. Going she insane. wanted to waste, you know, time on uh, Sari slash Absalar's uh, keen sense of taste. <laughs> that would be a waste. You know what? I'll, I'll take Chert's murder instead, instead of the taste thing. <laughs> Her being nimble is better than slaughtering those people in some city. <laughs> While this conversation is going on between Mallet and Perrin, they hear in the distance Kalam saying, come no further, show yourself. Something like that. And two people enter the glade, a man and a woman in a silver mask. I mean, all S's hit the fan, and now we're gonna get the assassins in the you know, in the mix. Yeah, <laughs> all two exactly. of them. <laughs> all right, watching from the darkened wood, Crocus witnesses a meeting between Vorkin, Ralik, and Kalam. The strange stump that's been growing in the forest has their attention basically completely. They're all staring at it. And it turns out that Ralik being in proximity to it stops this thing dead from growing. And he realize, he just knows right off. I mean, he says at least that it's the auditorial dust that he has rubbed in him. Right. Well, also, unlike everybody else, and this only makes sense, everybody else gets, kind of gets the willies by being around this thing, but he doesn't sense it at all. Yeah, Fine. he being Ralic doesn't sense it at all. So, I think it's Kalam is kind of like trying to push forward the meeting, and the rest of the bridge burners, which is Mallet, Perrin, and Sari, who looks drugged from Crocus's perspective, they enter the glade as well. Which is weird, right? Because Mallet was just like, "I'm not going anywhere near that thing." Well, I guess. But now that yeah. Ralic's in there, I guess he can exactly. So they arrive, and Perrin says, in this instance, Kalam speaks for the Empire, and in this instance being the offer of a contract. Yes, but... Kill the Torud Cabal for money. I think it's actually really kind of cool how they get together, and it's at this moment that they realize that everybody else besides Ralik and Vorkon are Malazan spies. They're fairly nonchalant about it. Well, maybe that's because they already kind of know that they're Malazan spies. I guess Ralik didn't know, but... Well, Crocus is the one... This is Crocus's section, so it's Crocus, really, that's figuring it out, right? He's like, Malazan spies, Vorkin, Ralik! My buddy Ralik. What's this guy doing? Yeah, and so he's getting front row seats to this um, this power union of, of, of people, 
in his Holy in his glade, and he's kind of like hiding in the shadows and watching. Well, I mean, he's really there because of Absalar, right? He was coming back to Absalar, and this is what he witnesses. All right, so what's the deal? The deal is a hundred thousand gold jacatans or whatever the coinage is called per member of the Torud Cabal plus high fist of the city if Vorkin will take the contract. And she's like, she's going to pay me, your empress is going to pay me 900,000 gold. And they're like, if that's the number. So there's a hidden question there that Vorkin has. And she's like, you know, and I can't remember how it's phrased, but she basically does not want to deal with Anamanda Rake. Oh, Perrin's like, no, 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 you don't have. No, that's not part of the deal. You, you just killed it. Cabal. In no way do we want you to take care of Anamander Rake. That's our deal. You just take care of these people in the city that we need taken care of. And with that, she accepts. <laughs> and tells uh, and tells Relic Nam to sit on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Stay, stay here until she comes back. Well, do you remember our last chapter when Perrin and Kalan were just leaving the Phoenix Inn and they were laughing about how bad it would be for Lucene if they found Vorkon and made this deal? And he, he said, no matter what happens, if she accepts, Lucene is on the hook to pay them. And which worse is... If she completes that contract, uh-huh. yes. That's reiterated here, that she will pay. She was an assassin. She operates by the rules. Yep. And she will happily pay and hand over the city without any questions whatsoever. The joke would be as if Lacine doesn't gain the city thereby. Well, yeah, that's that's exactly what they predicted, is that Lacine was going to pave the way to remove the powers in the city, and then Dujek was just going to walk in and take over <laughs> right. for himself. Exactly. <sighs> All right, so Ralik literally does go and sit down on this thing growing in the forest. And everybody departs except for Ralik, who's got his hands, his head in his hands, looking kind of dejected. <laughs> and like a cool minute passes, and Crocus is thinking about Ralik and like how, how this guy is going to hand the city over to the Malazans, and like he doesn't even know this guy. Like maybe he would just as soon kill him as so he's like, I'm not going to go and talk to this guy. And then Ralik stands up, looks straight at him, and beckons him over. So Ralik knew he was there the whole time. Nobody else did. Well, even Kalam. Kalam was there. He didn't know. Even more so, Vorkin. But part of that is uh, because of the mask that she's wearing. Yeah, her that's what Ralik tells not be so You're great. lucky she didn't have any. She had tiny little slits for eyes, or she would have spotted you too. So he says, "Don't judge me now." Go warn Baruch. Find him. He's, he might still be here. And if you can't find Baruch, get your uncle. And Crocus, true to form, does the exact same thing where he's like, but why? And Ralik's not having any of it. He's it straight up tells him, your uncle is a member of the Torud Cabal. Go. And then there's this roar, bestial roar of rage that comes from the terrace. That block of wood like erupted in fire. And he's like, go now. <laughs> I'm sorry, did Ralik get lax for a minute? Because did he like leave the I, leave the table to go talk to Crocus and then that's He got up, but he beckoned Crocus over, so Crocus did more work than he did in that. I think he just stood up. Okay. He risked it. Yeah. He didn't know how far his tether was. His tether is not at all. <laughs> well, no, because it, 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 it's he said it pushed Crocus hard, then whirled and dove onto the block. He said the yellow fire winked out and cracks opened in the earth, spreading in all directions. 
I don't know. Yeah. I got the sense like he he was lax in his duty for a split second, and it was in that split second. Well, hold on. Let's talk. Let's talk about the next section, and then we can actually find a timestamp for everything. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I think Phillips a little bit off in his timing. That, I, that's I. I'm not disagreeing with that. This was actually a confusing chapter for me. So, yeah. Well, just remember the bestial roar of rage. Okay. So Baruch's carriage comes to a screeching halt, and he tells Anamanda Rake, "We left too early." And, like, everybody in the streets is partying right now. 300,000 people. And, yeah. <laughs> and they're all in the streets. <laughs> and and there's a there's a conversation between Rake and Baruch about, you know, whether or not Rake is going to actually allow Race to run roughshod on the, on the city. Like, it looks like it's going to happen right now. Yeah. Um, but Rake's like... He, he's kind of cagey about his answer too he says if necessary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like he refuses to commit to this notion that yes i will be the one that goes and does the thing like he he won't do he won't say yes that's me he keeps saying things like if necessary but in krupp's dream kroll was saying that it's going to be animander rake to take you take you out i mean like he was like this sword is going to take you out it wasn't definitive. He didn't say that this is the man that's, that's going to do it. That's true, but I'm inferring. He said that Solana's master awaits you in the city with a fate worse than right. death. So it was like, you're going to die, sure buddy. Thing. You're going to die. But Anamander Rake knows that it's raced. He knows that the tyrant is the cause of the alarm, and he knows this by just like sniffing the air. He's like, hmm Ah, oh, it's the tyrant. And Baruch is super frustrated because he do- he's not in control. And he's not used to that. And this is something that Derridan pointed out last chapter, is that he's not used to not having that kind of control, and it's really irritating to him. But Rake wants to know, like, can you clear the city streets? And this is where the 300,000 people partying in the streets comes out. And Rake's like, all right, I'll take care of that. You go home and prepare, and where's a good high vantage point? (laughs) And he's like, Kroll's Belfry. And so Anamander Rake gets out of the carriage, he pulls out his sword. Just go back a little bit. He's like, all right, I'm going to go to Kroll's Belfry. And Brooks said, but how? How are you going to get through all these people? Well, he just whips out that sword. <laughs> it is like creaking and the smoke and silent screams or something. I don't know. So everybody just like gets the hell out of his way. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you? Oh, my God, that sword is terrifying. Seven-foot-tall guy with a holy sword of darkness. Oh, my God. And no mask. He left his mask behind. Yeah, he threw it on the ground, or on the in the carriage. In the carriage. Yeah. On the He's like, carriage. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so Rake is heading to Kroll's Belfry. That's the, that's the last we see of him for this chapter. Despite the death of a councilman and the absence of the hostess, the party at Lady Simtal's place is starting to pick up. <laughs> the bridge burners, they're still in place as guards when Perrin informs Whiskey Jack that Vorkin has accepted the contract. So it's at that moment that Quick Ben notices, hey, my headache's gone. And so he slips behind a pillar to go and open his warren to do a little investigation. And instantly there is this blast of magic that basically goes right between whiskey jack and perrin and it nails this old man wearing a jagged mask okay okay firstly when he realized he didn't have a headache he asked whiskey jack if maybe you know he should access his warren 
You think that's weird that you'd ask Whiskey Jack? Like, and is the fact that he accesses Warren the reason why all this stuff happened? Or is that just coincidental? I, I think him accessing his Warren was what allowed him to recognize Mamet as the tyrant. Mm-hmm. Okay. I believe. So this was like foreshadowing if there ever was such a thing in this book mm-hmm. where every single person that had a mask had an extremely appropriate mask. Ex- yes. Except for Mamet. Oh, he just happened to have a jagged mask. Well, guess what? Turns out that it was real appropriate. Was he always now, in? Was he always possessed? Do you think? No. You know what? You. I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say he was possessed the entire time, or he was under control. Uh-huh. I'm. A, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go there because you're right. The mask being what it was, that's totally appropriate and true to form. If. Well, and not only that, but he his excuse for not getting controlled by raced uh, uh, mammoth was that he just kind of stayed there and didn't make a move. <laughs> yes. And recall that when he said to Baruch, Mamet said to Baruch, we have two or three days, he was wrong. Mm. He only had a few hours. Mm. So he, he misled Baruch as well. Ooh. Oh, interesting. So uh, the force of blast that um, it went into Mamet and, or it came ben. from Mamet. Yes. No, it came from Quick Ben. It came from Quick Ben, and he blasted Mamet in order to keep Derudin, the witch, from Derud. Okay, so this is how it goes: you've got Mamet, who is like he's making a beeline for the bridge burners for some reason. He's making a be. We know why the Finnist is back there, mm-hmm. right? And they're basically the cordon oh, between yeah. him and the Finnist. So he's on his way straight back there. And Derudin is like, oh, Mamet, hey, I wanted to talk to you. And she's walking towards him with her servant in tow. And that's when Quick Ben blasts Mamet and then dives after Derudin because there's a bestial roar of rage from mm-hmm. Mamet. And he tries to blast Derudin and Quick Ben. And I mean, he he thrashes the partygoers. Like there's people disintegrating. It's like chain disintegration or something. Oh yeah, like, and those that aren't disintegrated, there's like clumps of body parts all over the place. And uh-huh. I mean, some people were able to run away. <laughs> well, uh, j- just a small point of clarity. I, th- I thought it was I thought it was Derudin who lashed out first. I didn't think no. Quick Ben had done anything yet. I'm pretty sure. I mean, you're welcome to go back and reread it and tell me that I'm wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure on the order of operations because when once she's tackled, she's like, that's Mammoth. He's possessed. And Quickbin's like, I know. And then she opens her warren, and the world starts to smell like deep forest loam as she's attacking him. Okay, okay. It doesn't say it was Quickbin, but I think it implies it was Quickbin because it said that, but it, it, nothing, nothing Quickbin one, has ever done. One, it's... One, it struck Mammoth, and two, it went right between Quick Ben and Perrin, so it came from behind them. No, it, which is where no, it, Quick, it went right between Whiskey Jack and Perrin. Whiskey Jack and Perrin. Yep. Speaking and, of Whiskey Jack, if yeah. I don't mention this, uh, people will um, fault us later on down the line. Whiskey Jack gets slammed in the shoulder, and he basically busts his knee. It's a pillar, a column yeah. from the terrace falls over on him in that disintegration attack and, and takes him so down. So Whiskey Jack's like... Well, later on, he's like pulled out of the the fray. So Perrin has drawn his sword after just talking to Whiskey Jack and seeing this magic, and he's like about to charge 
And then he gets hit by that disintegration ray. His sword gets hit by that disintegration ray. And he just yeah, he disappears. disappears. Him and the sword disappear is what it says. And what? So this is when Derudin assaults Mamet. And she's like, you've got to help me, wizard. That's the tyrant. And that's when the world smells like deep forest loam. And she announces that I have nothing left. You're going to help me, yes? And he just stares at her. <laughs> I call shenanigans on this one. She's supposed to be like this powerful wizard, one of the powers of the city. And she casts one spell and she's done. She, what is your first level wizard? I mean, I think she she put everything she had into that one opening. You know, she I think she t- she gave everything she had right then and there. That's what I think. Okay, and it wasn't enough. It's enough. All of these things are just designed to like whittle away. It's like a a, a war of attrition, right? Little by little, they they spend their power to deplete the tyrants just a little bit, right? Well, I get the impression and, that none of their attacks have done anything to Raced, other than damage him physically a little bit, but and slow him down. I mean, you might be right. You might be completely right. But, like, I look at it as a war of attrition, and they're losing the war. And, like, Derudin gave everything she had. She has nothing left, and it was not even close well, to enough. Well, look how it's happened. I mean, he's already in, basically, the city, you know? Um, he yeah. is where he wants to be. He's fought all these dragons. He's gotten past Tool and all yep. sorts of fools. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, he, he, uh, he shifted into someone's body. So it helps them. Yeah, but don't forget, <laughs> this guy is a continent-threatening menace. Right. This guy, yeah. these wizards are not. Right. These are just high wizards, right? Yeah, you know, these are the people that you know uh, they they control defend the cities. city. It takes nine of them to control and defend a city, exactly. right? Exactly. They're not on equal level with the tyrant. All nine of them, maybe, right. but not not one. Yeah, and one of them is being controlled by the tyrant. <laughs> yeah, so they're already down a man. They're down a wizard. I love that she's referred to as a witch. Oh, he's not a he's not a wizard. Who? Mamet. He was Mammoth? a priest of Drek. He's both. Oh, is he? Yes, he is. He is a high priest of Drek, but his warren is Driss. So he's also a wizard. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. And everybody in the Torud Cabal is a high mage. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So he's many things. He's a famous historian. He's a high priest, and he's a yeah, high. Yeah, so take that, Shelley's. <laughs> yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. He's just some old ass writer. You know, he's <laughs> not. You know, he might not be a powerful guy like Gorlis's dad, but you know what? Uh-huh. Crocus is hanging around the right people. Let's just say that. She- when they're not being controlled by race, I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd actually written that in my notes that she's like, oh, is this some ink-stained, you know, academic? And I'm like, ha, 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 if you only knew. Ink-stained academic who stumbles into walls. (laughs) I mean, it's like, yeah, no, she has a really good description for him. But it's appropriate for her to want the life that she's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's good Yeah, I'm just joking. Just call, just a call back, baby. You're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Mammoth is a badass. Mammoth is a badass. Um, well, you know, but now he's not. Uh, now well, he's now he's in. Con- now the badass is being controlled. And you know, maybe that gets me wondering: like, did the tyrant, if if he uh, wasn't already uh, dominated by the tyrant, and the tyrant shows up here choosing that body, and maybe he chose that body, Mammoth's body, because Mammoth was the most powerful among that them. That could be too. Or like we said, you know, he has a he had a close proximity. 
maybe smell him mm-hmm. out. The guy's wearing a mask that reminds you of you. <laughs> you know, hey, these are things. That's me. Again, he could have just easily courted disaster uh, without knowing it. Maybe he was uh, subconsciously fooled with. The section that we are about to discuss is very much like a dream, like one of Krupp's dreams. Uh, so, anyway. well, it, there, there's a surreal, unrealistic aspect to it that I found confusing. Perrin finds himself standing beside a lake in a marsh, and close to a Talana Moss with a giant flint sword is fighting Groot. Yeah, that's what it is. It's Groot. <laughs> so it is a man tree creature or a tree man creature that is fighting with this Talana mask that we know fully well. That's tool. Okay. As Perrin watches a scarred and misshapen house is rising out of the lake and a solid blow from Groot. This thing lands tool right at his feet. So now, what is the thing coming up out of the water? The Azath? I only know right. that because I know that. <laughs> well, you know that because Tool says right away, you must defend the Azath from the Finnist. He said it's not ready. So is the Finnist this tree thing? Yes. That's fighting Tool. So, yes. Which is also he- that stone thing that Relic Nam is sitting on. Hold your horses, uh, sir. Uh, uh, Okay, so that's what I'm getting at. Is is let's not worry about these details right now. Yes. Let's deal with this at the end. Let's deal with the chronological order that these things happen okay. in, and we'll define our we'll define our terms as we learn them. We know that that house is called the Azath, and we know that that tree man creature that Tool has been fighting is the Finnest, and it's trying to destroy the Azath. Correct. Perrin's job is to defend it to help Tool defend the Azath from the Finnist. So is is the is the tree Finnist and the table Finnist is it is the Finnist coexisting on multiple planes of existence? Yes. Okay. okay. And so is the Azath. Okay. So Perrin uses his sword. He tries to to slice into the to the Finnist. The tree thing. Oh, dude. Mine. What was that? That's all he gets. Yeah. He he. You remember we talked about this a couple of chapters ago that it might be enough just to just to mentally think that you are going to be in opposition to somebody that the will to be in opposition to somebody might be enough to let them know, and I think that's what happened to Perrin because he agrees that yes i'm going to do this thing i'm going to oppose that creature and then in his head he hears the creature claim his soul and that's what he says he says the grip on mine. his soul. yeah i mean that's terrifying and you can't do anything about it but he's instantly dominated instantly. yeah he is um this has a quick effect on him but um is this raced through the finnest controlling him remember that the Finnist is the receptacle for the majority of race's power. Right. Yeah, but here it's implied that the Finnist is somehow sentient. I would say yes, I agree. That Even though the right. glossary definitely makes you know that it's a receptacle for race power, not a living thing. Okay. Imagine, imagine if someone took three quarters or more of your life force and put it into a test mm-hmm. tube 
and that test tube is th- is three quarters of Yule, mm-hmm. right? So like the volume on you Yule would be turned down to one quarter, right? But the volume on that test tube is turned up to three quarters. But they're both you. Yeah, I kind of liken it uh, to gaming uh, as like a, a lich where they have a phylactery and like you kill the lich. Yeah, I think that's and then its soul or something fair. is uh, somewhere else, housed elsewhere. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. And for those of you that are Harry Potter fans, think of Voldemort, how he keeps coming back. All right. Because he's essentially a lich, Mm -hmm. right? All right, so Perrin has been dominated completely and utterly. His sword has turned on him, and he he has been claimed by the Finnis. And he questions all existence at this moment. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Is this all this has come down to? Is this for me to do this? Think about everything he survived. Mm -hmm. He survived an encounter with the hounds. He survived an encounter with the Rivi people. He survived an encounter with Anamanda Rake. And then he... And he he was killed by Sari. He survived that too. And then he faces this creature and is immediately dominated. Immediately. But just like that, he's gone. I mean, just like that, he fights it off also. Cold lances of pain are like piercing his body, and then he's he hears something in the distance, and then the lances begin to break, and there's heat, and it's a howl. He can hear a howling, and the hounds, blood of the hounds that cannot be enslaved. Uh, specifically, the one uh, Gear's blood, right? That he touches, and then Perrin went into Dragnapur, and then he figured a way to. Free the or was it blind? I can't remember which one. It wasn't gear. It was Baron and blind. Baron and blind. I can't remember which one. Something like that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, he touched one of Yule's. Correct. He touched one of the hound's blood, and that's what dragged him into Dragnapur, whereby he was able to help release them from bondage within the sword. And also, if you remember, the hound when he was stuck inside Dragnapur, one of the hounds jumped on him, and it didn't kill him. And the reason was, by an observer, was that, oh, well, he, he, they must have smelled the blood on you right. and thought you were one of them. And so, and I said, that's BS. And if you remember, I also said it was BS. He touched the blood to begin with, right? And then he said, oh, it, you smell like a hound. I was like, the hound is going to be able to tell the difference. You know, you're not going to fool a hound. But it was more than just smell on him. There was some sort of, I don't know, taint is the right They're word. They're now blood brothers. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, Blood Brothers. Yeah. So it's the blood of the hounds that is unenslavable. I viewed it as a payback. Like they're paying him back for his service. He freed them from the sword, and now they're like, you're cool with us. We're going to help you out now. Oh, do you think that's what it is? Hey, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think you're right. They're like, okay, you know, it's like quid pro quo. I mean, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine kind of uh, thing. And I think that they're doing it right now. Yeah, they, they liberate Perrin. And they give him the strength of the hounds. They give him the blood of the hounds. And he, he no sword in hand, because he dropped it. He attacks that finist with his hands he beats it with his fists he rips it apart with his bare fists and he's biting it that's crazy tool has to pull him off <laughs> and tool's life is at at risk now as a result also well it's like berserker rage right it was definitely that his parent is in such a blood red uh, rage like you said uh he doesn't yeah. know what he's doing i mean he's tearing this thing up 
Uh, it's not killing it. Little guy it can't kill it, but he is tearing it up. But he's like pulling well, out chunks of wood with his bare teeth. I was I just a crazy yes. scene. Spitting it out. Yes. Well, Tool pulls him off, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, buddy! You've done enough. You have delayed it long enough. The Azith will take care of it now." So Perrin calms down, and then these tendrils come out of the water, streak across the ground, wrap the finnest. Groot creature up and then drag it under the water. And Perrin asks Tool, you got something to say? <laughs> and Tool's like, you're a long way from home, buddy. Perrin picks up his sword. And I got to ask you guys, would you pick that sword up at this no, point? No, I would have thrown it away a long time ago anyway. Well, he knows his luck is turned. That sword is no longer useful to him. So I don't know why he picked it up. Well, I mean, well, you pick it up and give it to your worst enemy. Or destroy it, right? Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Mm. That's good. Well, hey, like where that. did this Azath come from? I mean, th- that's not explained. It's just like materializing. All of a sudden, we're just getting this thing. I understand your confusion and your desire to know, but we will learn more before this chapter is over. Oh, what, really? Because I don't remember finding an answer. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't say we'll get an answer. I say we will learn more. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I, yeah, I just, I mean, why, okay, so this whole thing, I just didn't get, why did, why did Perrin, like, teleport across dimensions and right in front of... Time. He's a time traveler in this Right case. in front of Groot, and the, and then Onos Tulin is right there, and then the Azath yeah. is right there. I don't, I don't get it. What, why, how is all this happening? I don't know. I don't know. I'm hoping that it has something to do with Prang Cole and Krupp and Kroll all kind of foreseeing what was going to happen and then maybe even hijacking some of the tyrant's power to bring Perrin there. So is Perrin... No, wait. Okay, so Perrin is not dead, but he was like whisked away just as Raced was going to disintegrate him? He got hit. He got hit by that chain disintegration. Yeah. And that is what teleported him or transported him in time wherever he just went. We don't know. Yeah. I have no Nor idea. I, but nobody else came. That's true. Um, but, no, you know, like h- how many other people that were there at the party got hit by that thing that were anything? Right? They were just people. They were councilmen's wives and children and, you know, that's all. They weren't wizards. No wizards died in the making of that well, battle. Well, it did say that the power struck the sword and it uh-huh. and Perrin vanished. Oh, Yule, you nailed it. You nailed it. That's it. That's it right so there. So the sword did that help out, sword. at least this time. <laughs> sort of. Well, no, it, it oh. put him right in harm's way. Which may have been the point. You remember how, I think it was Krupp that was remembering or thinking about the fate of Crocus. And he was like, they make these tools, the gods do. They make these tools, and then when they're done with them, they throw them away. They discard them. They kill the tool. And this may have been Opon trying to kill their tool. All right, so Perrin reappears and collapses on the terrace at Simtal's place. The tyrant-possessed Mammoth and Quickbin are at war. Quickbin's like, awaken the seven within me. And then he's... He's talking about all seven of the Warrens that he is in control of, right? Yeah, but it's got like a command word, which is weird, right? It's like uh, Wonder Twin Powers activate or something. Yes, 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 exactly. 
So Quick Ben is using all seven of his warrens, which is a mind-blowing amount of warrens. Let's be clear. I don't comprehend this. Is it like it's like all seven at once are blasting him with seven warrens simultaneously? Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. We go, let's go back to my analogy about attrition, okay? So he's got seven Warrens, and all seven of them are attacking Mammoth. And one by one, Mammoth is just flicking his hand, and they're closing. <laughs> he's closing them one at a time. Think of it like the, um, uh, what is it called? The prismatic I was sphere. thinking of a beholder. Or prismatic ray. He's crushing Quick Bins. Warrens closed one at a time. Yeah. And Quick Ben, he's I mean he's spending everything he's got to defeat this guy and this guy is just snapping his fingers and closing his warrants and then he notices that Hedge in the distance has an arbalist aimed at Mammoth. Do you think that's why Druden could only cast like one spell and then it was closed? I mean, I think she put everything she had into her attack. Okay. Is what I think. Okay. And that wasn't enough. However many warrants she has access to, we don't know. Quickman done the same thing. He's he unleashed all of them and then like one by one. Everything. Yes. Because he understands the risk this thing poses, right? And so Quickman seeing Hedge with that arbalist, he dives at Derudin and tackles her again. He must really like it. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking, that she must be something special for him. Well, she's just, you know? she was on him first, and now it's his turn. No, no, no. He ta- no, he tackled her twice. Oh, now. Yeah, okay. but I think I think the first time he 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 wound up on bottom, but doesn't really matter. The point is that's a really soft place to land. I think he thinks she's special, is what I think, because he's gone out of his way to like action movie hero dive through the air and tackle her twice. That's true. He's never done anything like that ever physically, right? No, he's seriously being like an action hero. It's crazy. Well, you don't want the shot to get wasted. You hear the thock. Of the crossbow being fired, and then you move on. Well, that's what I assume. I think yeah, it's... okay. That's the reason. That's his premise for why he tackled her, right? Get her out of the way. Well, he must have known something was going to happen. Obviously, he he knew that that arbalist was going to go off, so he goes and tackles Derridan, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. that make sense? He's sweet on her. Uh, I think so. <laughs> I definitely think so. Circling high over the valley outside of Darujistan, Crone witnesses the tyrant come to within 50 feet of Solana, and then he vanishes. And Crone, she knows she's being called elsewhere. She's needed elsewhere, but she's reluctant to go. She wants to know what's going to happen to the tyrant. And then Solana takes off and causes Crone to lose a lot of altitude in the process. And as she's climbing again, Solana lets out a keening cry. And then as Crone gets back up high into the sky, she sees what Solana has seen. And she says, and now it comes, it comes. Enjoy and anticipation. Crone says that. Oh, she is thrilled. She's absolutely what is, thrilled. What's coming? I have no idea. We don't know. Yeah, we have no idea. We don't know. Well, I just assumed I, I forgot something. Well, I'm. We, we you might have. Um, I am suspicious that this has to do with old Animander, and remember he was heading to high ground, mm-hmm. and that's. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Ah. Uh, like a perch, high ground, like a perch. What would you do to drive three hundred thousand people inside? Because he can't make it to every street corner and you know scare them off with his sword. Mm. He was just doing that to make way so he could get to the 
Belfry. I guess make yourself as big and as imposing as possible. Yeah, puff yourself up like a turkey. That's right. So I had a, a, I had a quick question. Turkey. I had a quick question. <laughs> so Crone is, I guess, reminiscing that the guy just like disappears, and then she says, "Such terrible energies I have witnessed. I mock the waste, the sheer foolishness." Was she lamenting the fact that that race was just destroying everything, or that she couldn't <laughs> suck up his energy? I assume it was the latter more than the former because they like magic. What does the d- glossary say about uh, the raven? I thought it said something they feed off its essence. They're sustained by magic, yeah. I believe, is the wording. So maybe it's that, that it was like a waste, a profuse waste of something that they view as like a life-sustaining force. I don't know, though. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I think that's up to the reader's interpretation. I don't think Crone is supposed to be really all that understandable to us. Remember, she's a bird. She's not, and she's, you know, ancient, very different from humans. So I don't think we're expected to really understand her perspective. All right, fair enough. But I, 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 I interpret that to mean vast amounts of magic that like disappeared, and she was upset because she couldn't absorb that essence that she was really feeding on. That's why she's been lingering around. Quickbin, still in action hero mode, is jumping through the air and tackling Derudin again just as this massive explosion goes off. Kaboom! So this was the munition fired by Hedge, and it left a gaping hole in the ground where Mammoth had been standing just a moment ago. Yeah, and there's something really important here. Quickbin says it's really good that you closed your warren to Derudin. And the reason why he says is because Maranth munitions are mundane weapons and open warrens draw their explosive force. And I thought that was a, a little extra info that I don't know if we knew before. We d- Oh, no. No, we definitely didn't. S- and what it, was it Hedge that said that's why they're so good for killing wizards? I think he did, yeah. I think he did. He said that out loud in front of Derudin, who I will remind our listeners is one of the members of the Torud Cabal. So if she hasn't picked up who she's dealing with by now, she's not that bright, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think she really knew about that, though. Like, she wasn't clued in on the Maranth munitions part, so... her Not the Maranth munitions, but the fact that these simple house guards were willing and capable and able to take out wizards? Oh, sure. I mean, that should, that should send alarm bells off to her. Right. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. So I was a little confused. He said, like, Morant munitions are mundane weapons, but opened warrens draw their explosive force. I, that, that seems to be a paradox. It's like they're... Maybe like a backfire or something like that? Or backdraft, or I mean? Or a vacuum. Yeah, like a vacuum. Yeah. Exactly. But how could it... I mean, why would it suck up an explosive force? Well, it draws it to maybe it's, maybe it's literally a difference in pressure, huh? Where they're like the open war. You remember the open warrens are described as like breath, breathing in and out. Mm. Well, okay. So maybe on the intake they literally intake. Well, okay, okay, sure, but it seems that seems kind of a thin reason. A slight intake of breath cannot suck up, uh, you know, an explosion. So. Uh, well, that's fine. It's it's obviously not a simple intake of breath, though. It's just an analogy or a metaphor. Mm. And at the same time, it's also just a little bit more information than we had before. So I'm just going to put it in my little bag of knowledge 
and keep it and hope that we get more of these things from Erickson so that we can better understand how magic works in his world. All right, fair enough. But Quick Ben thinks that uh, we did it. We got rid of Raced. He's done. The Jackhead Tyrant's dead. Right. So Perrin, who has been sprawled on the cobbles, he gets up and he heads off to find Whiskey Jack. Hedge says a lot of help he was, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, there's a lot of funny stuff there. It was all from oh, when there is, yeah. Quick Ben said, you idiot, how many times have I? He's like, he's dead, ain't he? <laughs> yeah. So Kalam is peering down into the crater, and he says something's moving down there. Impossible. Yeah. Well, then blurred roots snake out of the garden and envelop the Omtos Falak apparition that had been reforming down in the bottom of that crater. And then Derudin says, Azath, here? And then she's like, I gotta go. And she takes off. So Fiddler and Hedge have been given the green light. So they take off to go and detonate the munitions. And then we've still got Kalam staring down into that crater. He just watched this thing get taken and then he's like, those pipes are broken, but no water's coming out of them. So he like reaches down in there and then he is struck by realization. So he's thinking to himself, uh oh, where are the sappers? And they're like, oh, they took off. He's like, oh, they're going to blow up the city. The entire well, city. Because- so yeah, he thinks about the gray face. So explain it to okay. me. Explain it to me. The way that they are fueling uh, the city so that it can be lit at night through those uh, through the the lamps is a uh, like a gas gas distribution network. Yes, and the the realization is that if they blow up, I guess just any one part, <laughs> that's going to be bad enough because it's going to be uh, major explosions because of this. And they've, of course, you know. Uh, set up bombs all over the place. <laughs> so essentially, this is a gas main, a buried gas line. Every major intersection is a buried gas main. Think of Waco, and they're that's where we're at right they're now. They're going to blow the entire city yeah. up if they detonate even one of those. They're going to blow up the entire right. city. And them included. Yeah, everybody's dead in this city, and they don't want to die. <laughs> so that's how this chapter leaves off. Um, there's a couple of things when Callum says something's moving down there and they're observing uh, raced. He described it as Omtos Falak power. That's what was manifesting mm-hmm. down there, which is why I used the analogy of volume earlier, right. where we took away three quarters of your power and put it into a test tube and mm-hmm. etc. Because it's like raced is just a certain amount of Omtos Falak mm-hmm. power. It specifically described it as an apparition. So I think the right. physical form is gone. Body is gone. Mammoth's gone. Mammoth's dead. Oh. And that was witnessed by Crocus, mm-hmm. by the way. When Derudin takes off, so does Crocus, which is very sad. He just watched his uncle get murdered. But I wonder how much he knew. I wonder if he understood that his uncle was possessed and that they didn't kill him just to kill him. But I don't know. I don't so know. So Vorkon only gets 800,000 jakatas now? I guess so. I guess, unless she lies and says she did it. Let's see what happens. We've got two chapters to go. They're very short. I don't know the answers to lots and lots of questions that I still have. I would like to have them. <laughs> but let's go. Let's talk right now about the difference between the Finnist and the Azeth and what was growing in the garden. Because I feel like the thing that Ralik was sitting on was the Azath and not the Finnist. Why? Because he said it was hungry? 
Crocus described it when he approached Rallick after the bridge burners and Vorkin had left. Crocus described it as looking like a house. Mm-hmm. And then when Perrin went to went back in time, he was defending this thing that looked like a house. Well, then how could it work then if Ralik was sitting on top of it? It was being thwarted by Ralik. Ralik was thwarting the Azas. So who put the Azas? Not the f- who put the Azas there? So Derridan says in this last section that the Azath come whenever unchained power threatens mortal mm-hmm. life. So you think maybe cruel? If you go through the glossary and the appendix of this book, there is zero mention of Azath. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's nothing to give us any more information than we have right now. But Derridan seemed, the way that she phrased it, she said Azath here? As though they can be other places. So it's something mobile and it's something cognizant of unchained threat. And then I started to wonder, does this have something to do with obelisk? Because burn is the earth. Okay, right? yeah. And crawl was once obelisk also. I don't know, Philip. I mean, well, I just don't okay, know. But I, w- but I do know that the description of the houses makes me fairly confident that the thing that was growing in the forest was the Azath and not the Finnis. Okay, as a counterpoint, or a not a counterpoint, but another piece of information is it's said that the altar in the forest was made out of wood. The Finnist yes. was made out of wood, and the Finnist was an acorn. So that's why I, that's why I went in the direction of all those three things are the Finnist. Totally understandable. The, and the thing that was fighting with Tool and Perrin was also made of yeah, wood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But and the house was not made out of wood, but it had like wooden, you know, beams inside of it and stone walls. And so like that part's a little bit unclear, but Crocus was very clear. He said that that thing looked like a house with little windows. And then that's the thing that's growing out of the swamp. So, so I think those two things are one and the same. So that this this Azath is just kind of a naturally occurring phenomena of the universe that spontaneously creates to balance a force of nature, right? It's like a force of nature to balance nature. Uh, unknown. It sounds good. What you said sounds good. Um, but I think we're going to have to wait to find out the answer. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, This... This this whole thing was a confusing part with the Azath and the Finnist and the plane jumping and what Oh, time travel. Yeah, no, this was this was more confusing than yes. one of Krupp's oh, dreams. Well, that's the walk- funny El- thing. It actually makes walking. it actually makes Krupp's dreams seem normal. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that's sort totally right. understandable now. Oh yeah, he's just uh, talking right. to elder gods that are way back when. Oh no Duh. Tool came out and said it. He's like, You have strange dreams, human. Yeah, yeah, he does. He absolutely does have strange dreams. I uh, just let you know a little teaser. Uh, chapter twenty-four. The poem is all about the Azath House. Oh, good, so good, we'll excellent. So we to. will get we will get more information about that, which is nice because it's it's unfun to have these like open-ended questions between I, books. Yeah, unfortunately, it is between books. I do, here's a little extra knowledge for those of you in the future. Uh, they definitely will deal with the uh, Zath houses in the in, in future books. Okay, excellent. I don't think that's a spoiler at all. Personally. It's not. I mean, yeah, it's just a thing. Yeah, right. Um, this was a very difficult chapter. It was very long for an Erickson chapter, um, but I honestly think that we covered it as well as we could, and I'm ready to move on to the last two chapters. Oh, hey, there's one Whew. important thing we completely forgot to mention. Uh, what's that? 
Perrin whiplashed back into the 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 gardener, the foyer, or whatever it is. He came back. Yeah, I know. I mentioned that. No, we, oh, did, did? we did. I think we did. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Never mind. And Dang, what? And what though? Oh, nothing. I just I thought we skipped that part. As in, he's not stuck in that alternate no. dimension. Yeah, no, no, I, no, no, I mentioned no. that he reappeared and collapsed on the cobbles, and then he went oh. off looking for Whiskey Jack shortly after. Oh, okay, I missed that. All right, so do you guys have anything else? No, nah, I'm good. As with all episodes, good things and etc., this must come to a close. Thank you for joining us. We will see you in the next one on the 9th or the 23rd, whatever. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye, all. Bye.